it has been a great morning already. Um, that's exciting, seeing all of the different elements that we have going on. I was actually talking to someone at a wedding this weekend about our church, and they said, um, well, how would, you, how would you describe the music at your church? And I said, confused. <laughs> that's, that's how I would describe the music at our church, confused. And he said, well, why, what do you mean by that? I said, well, because we do, we do some contemporary stuff, and we kind of lean that direction, but then we also do traditional stuff. And when we do traditional stuff uh, here recently, we really do traditional stuff. And, and then we have kind of some stuff in the middle. So uh, confused. He said, I would call that eclectic. I said, I like confused. But it is good to, to be here with you, and I am so excited about the orchestra. We look forward to having that up here. Uh, you need to know that the reason that we have an orchestra is because the, the young people asked to do it. They asked to play their instruments, and, and to me that's encouraging when we've got uh, young men and women that are like, hey, we've got instruments that we can play. We want to play them. Uh, can we? The answer is going to generally be absolutely. And so I'm so excited for this intergenerational orchestra that we have here at the church. And we look forward to having them more often. I want to follow up on what my good friend Sean Malone and Jen said just a little bit ago. So he noted that, uh, Sean, actually, can you come up here right quick? I'm going to call a, an audible right here. You are not going to get out of here in an hour today. So if you thought you were, I'm sorry. If you got somewhere to be. You know where the doors are. <laughs> I don't mean to be rude. Uh, so this is Sean Malone. Sean was just up here, and I was just going to say it. But Sean, how many meals did you say that you would serve uh, the last year? 1,947 meals. 1,947. And over the years, you kind of grew that, right? It started with just uh, a few our, hundred. Our first year was, I think, 300 meals. And then every year it grew maybe by like 100 or so. Um, the year before COVID, we were at uh, around 1,100. 1100. And then during... COVID, it, it grew more. People lost their jobs and, yeah, and sure. lost income. So that number just kept growing, and, and we feel it'll grow this year, too. And, and the last couple of years, you did boxed meals, but before that, you were doing it in your pizza kitchen. Tell, tell everybody what you told me about how you made your potatoes. We were boiling water in our pizza ovens because we don't have stovetops in our pizza shop, so... Uh, Y'all understand what that means, right? <laughs> that he was taking the water and pushing it into the oven where they would normally cook their pizzas, closing it, left the, letting the water boil, opening the pizza oven and taking the water out so they dangerous. can make potatoes. Yeah, it's a little dangerous. So um, <laughs> uh, COVID kind of helped us grow a little bit in that we could provide cold box lunches. But the, the idea of this from the beginning was hot meals. Yeah, and so for sure. We, we've always wanted to get back to that, and that's where we're heading. Sure, so. and so Sean and I, and we, we uh, had been talking for a while about this, and uh, we went to uh, an entertainment event recently, um, WWE, and uh, <clears throat> on our way to and from the event, we were talking about uh, about how we could maybe partner together for this. And so you talked a little bit about that. Yeah, we have a great kitchen here at FBC, and it, it would be super helpful to get us back on track to do hot meals here. And so I asked Dr. J if maybe we could use the kitchen. So. And so we, we have agreed with that. So Sean mentioned that you will have an opportunity. And I love that you all clapped and cheered, and we're so excited about the meals. And we're going to make you put your money where your mouth is. So the question that I've been dealing with for several weeks is how are we going to do this whole Christmas morning thing, right? We've got a Christmas Eve service, and that's going to be our big thing. And, and I know it's Christmas Day, but ev anything after the Christmas Eve service feels kind of like a decrescendo. But then Sean and I were talking, and I thought to myself, well, what if we combined our Christmas morning service with an act of service? What if we made delivering meals with Sean part of our Christmas offering together as a church. And so that is exactly what we are going to do. On Christmas morning, when you come here to First Baptist Church, you will be instructed to park much like you would at a funeral. The cars will come in and line up, and we will park you in a line. Sean and his team will be working to prepare the meals down in the kitchen. We will have a short worship service in the fellowship center with anybody from the community that wants to come and be a part of this service opportunity. When we are done with a few um, 
Christmas carols and a brief reading of some Christmas passages, we will all go get in our cars, we will take the food, and we will go deliver hot meals to people in need in our community. So we are going to partner with Sean and, and Jen on this this year, and we are excited to be a part in feeding how many people this year? Our goal is 2,300. 2,300 people helping them get hot meals. So I hope that you all as a church body, I know that a lot of people have asked me, so we're going to have a service on Sunday? Like, what are we? We are going to do this service. And I, I hope and pray that you will consider and come and be a part of this very special opportunity for service. It's, it, we always talk about how it's better to give than to receive, um, but talk is cheap. And so this is a way, I know that it's not your normal thing with your kids on a Sunday morning, but what better way to celebrate the coming of Christ than to do what Christ came to do? Christ said he came to serve, not to be served. And so we have an opportunity to serve the bread to people as they look to the light of life, the bread of life, Jesus Christ who's come. So we're going to take a minute and we're going to pray for Sean and, and for this opportunity. And we're going to pray for us that we would have courage to be a part of this amazing opportunity. Would you actually stand with me as we pray for that this morning? Father God, I thank you for my brother, Sean Malone. I love this guy, Lord, and you know what an encouragement that he has been to me throughout the years and, and what a privilege I think it is to be his friend. Lord, I thank you for his heart. And I thank you for his leadership. I thank you for the chance that we as a church have to be a part of what he and Jen are doing to, to reach out to the community along with some other area businesses. Lord, I pray that you would give us courage and strength, Lord, that you would supply the needs that are, um, are needed, Lord, the, the funding and the food and the products and, and whatever is needed. God, I pray that you would just open up your stores of heaven and you would just pour out your blessings. And Lord, I pray that you would give us courage to join in on this, this opportunity that's a little bit different but oh so important and amazing. Lord, help us to be your hands and feet. Thank you for Jen and Sean and their courage to, to come and allow us to be a part of this. And we just pray that you would work and move in amazing ways and that we would be able to uh, feed and uh, feed both bodies and souls this Christmas season in the name of Jesus. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Thanks, Sean. Thank you, church. Y'all may be seated. So I want to ask you a question as we get into the sermon this morning. What is the most frustrating task of the Christmas season? I'll ask it again just so you can let it sink into your mind and you can think about it. What is the most frustrating task of the Christmas season? You know, we could easily make this one of those multiple choice Questions, you know, that you have on tests, the ones that drive everyone crazy, where you've got the multiple choice and they say, pick the most correct answer. It's one of those things where you look at it and there are multiple correct answers, but there's generally answers that are more correct than others, right? We, we could easily do that with this. While I am a great lover of the Christmas season, there are more than a few aspects of the season that I do not love all the time. I'm going to give you a few examples. First, and this is in descend, uh, ascending order, so from the lesser frustrating to the greatest frustrating, right? So the first that I, I want to mention is untangling strands of Christmas lights. And, and a second addendum to that, closely related, dealing with those strands that go out after being hung on the tree or the house. Right? It doesn't matter what you do. It does not matter. I think it is like the, the thorn of, of Satan that God has given all of us to remind us what the season is truly about, that it's not about the lights because you've either got to remind yourself to calm down and that you do enjoy the season or you're going to lose your Jesus, right? Every year it seems to happen. I will get those lights out and it does not matter. Like I, I have had a lot of experience winding cables, right? I know how to do it. And no matter how hard I work at winding those, cable, or those, those Christmas lights in ways that they will come out easily, it, it, somehow the, the, the Christmas light elves have gotten into our boxes and they are tied into pretzel knots once we get them out every year. So I slowly take my time and I untangle all those lights and drives me nuts and I plug them in. And of course, all the lights work at that point in time, right? All the lights work. And I'll even leave them plugged in and I will put them up on the tree. And at some point in the season, a strand of lights will go out. 
And it can't be the easy strand of lights, right? It's got to be the strand of lights that you have to have an engineering degree to get off of the tree without breaking everything. Or it's the strand of lights on the house that requires the long extension ladder and, and uh, the walk of death across the roof to get to the lights to replace them. It is ridiculous, but that is the way that it happens every year. So one of the things that frustrates me, untangling strands of Christmas lights and dealing with strands that go out. The second thing that I would say drives me nuts, and I would say that this is probably 1B, is driving through holiday traffic. But I want to be specific. Driving through holiday traffic in the Walmart parking lot. Holiday traffic is famously bad everywhere, right? It has been immortalized in song numerous times throughout the ages. We could turn on the radio and hear it. But nowhere is the, the, the driving or traffic worse than in the Walmart parking lot during the Christmas rush. Very few places lack the spirit of Christmas or suck it from a person, like weaving through a bunch of self-interested sinners rushing around trying to get the best deals on whatever is being offered. Driving through holiday traffic in the Walmart parking lot. But I think the thing, and most of us will agree about, about this, that is one of those things that we, we may have a love-hate relationship, but we struggle with, is shopping for Christmas gifts. Now, some of you may love that, but I asked, and my wife was immediately like, I hate the shopping for Christmas gifts. It's just hard, and I think there's a lot of things that go into this. In the age of Amazon and the internet at large, shopping is easier and more convenient than it has ever been throughout the entirety of human history. There are ways in which this is absolutely amazing, but these resources are available all year long. This has resulted in a situation where if someone wants or needs something, we just pull out our phone and we get it at the click of a button. I know that I do. If I want a book at a given time, I look it up on my phone, I order it, and it's there the next day. So you get to Christmas time and someone's like, hey, what do you want for Christmas? And you're like, ah, I don't know. Well, I already got what I wanted like two weeks ago. The question then becomes, what do you buy for someone who has everything? What do you buy for someone who has everything? It's a difficult task for middle-class Americans. Imagine how difficult it must have been to, to decide what to give a king. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, oh, he's going to talk about Jesus and the wise men. No, he's not. If you have a Bible, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 1 through 6. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God offers some, some gifts to, to King David. And it's interesting how this conversation starts and where it ultimately leads. It starts with the king, and he, he mentions himself as the King David, considering what gift he might give to God. And David has no trouble in his own mind coming up with the perfect gift for God. He's going to give God a new house. And he tells the prophet that this is his plan. And Nathan, the prophet, says, hey, do whatever God's placed on your heart. Go ahead. God, though, turns things upside down and, and refuses the gift of David and instead tells David about these amazing gifts he's going to give King David, gifts that only God could give. So let's look at the passage here in 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 through 16. It says, After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant, David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. 
Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty said. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people and plant them, so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies." The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod, Wielded by men with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. So we see it here, this this interesting uh, turning around that starts with, with David saying, God, I'm going to build you a house, and, and ends with God saying, no, I'm going to build you a house. And throughout this passage, we see several different gifts that God offers to David that I would like to submit to you that God, through Jesus, offers to us as well today. Let's take a look at them. The first gift we see here is the gift of God's presence. The gift of God's presence. Verse verse 5 of chapter 7, it says, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. This is another one of those instances where I like it better in the good old King Jimmy. Thus saith the Lord. This is an important phrase throughout the Old Testament. And, And if repeat means remember, which is one of the things I like to say, that repeat means remember, then this is a phrase that we should really look for because it's not only repeated several times in this passage, and it is, it's repeated three times in the verses that we've just read in one form or the other, but this is one of those phrases that is repeated over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. And it's a very important phrase, and we see it very poignantly here in this passage that something has shifted in Nathan's presentation. Because if we go back to the beginning, in verse 3 of chapter 7, it says, Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. Notice there's a change there. That that in verse 3, it's just Nathan speaking for Nathan. Kent Wagner likes to tell me that when he talks in his Sunday school, there will be times where where he's talking and he's reading the word of God, and that's the word of God. But then there will be times where Kent will say, now this is just Kent's opinion. This is just Kent talking right now. Interestingly, Kent, that's right here in the Bible. This is, this is Nathan saying, hey, this is Nathan's opinion, and this sounds good to me. You want to build a house for, for the Lord? Absolutely. That's a great idea. God has been with you up to this point, so go ahead and do all that is on your heart. But then Nathan goes home and sleeps on it. And as he's sleeping on it, God comes to him and he says, hey, This isn't what I want. You go and tell my servant David. And so when Nathan stands before David and says, thus says the Lord, the voice is shifting. It is no longer the voice of Nathan the person. It is now the voice of Nathan the prophet. And Nathan is now speaking on behalf of God. This phrase again is is repeated three times here. It's a very important phrase for us to to, to lock into. And and what's so important to us about this phrase is that if God has said it, then we can take it to the bank. Because God is making some lofty promises to David via Nathan. As the angel told Mary in Luke 1.37, as 
the, the birth of Jesus was announced, no word of the Lord will ever, ever fail. The Lord shifts the focus here from what David could do for, for God and refocuses attention on what God will do for David. Now, if we look at this passage, we notice that, that God is really not concerned with a nice, ornate building. God doesn't need a fancy house on a hill to function as the God of his people. His plan, practice, and promise has been and continues to be to live with and among his people. I love, I love the the, the intent of, of this passage and what it communicates as it focuses on the difference between a brick and mortar building, right? A building like this, as beautiful as it is and ornate as it is, the problem with this building is there's, there's a, a concreteness to it, right? It doesn't move. And, and the interesting thing historically, as you look at religious organizations, whether it be the people of Israel or the church of Jesus Christ, when we get in solid big buildings, we become more and more lethargic. We become more content to sit in our big, ornate buildings and less mobile. And we begin to live under the delusion that God doesn't meet with us unless we are in God's house. That's where the tent is, is maybe a bigger or a better picture of God, a tent, something temporary where it, it's mobile and it can be packed up pretty quickly and it moves wherever we move and wherever we go and God is there with us. But I think there's actually something more important within the wording of what's going on here. Because David says to God that he wants to build for God a house of cedar. It, it reminds me of an important, it, 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 it actually illustrates an important thing that goes on at Christmas that maybe we don't always like. It's what I'd like to call the reciprocation obligation. The reciprocation obligation. Once again, the, the giving and getting of gifts at Christmas are sometimes a double-edged sword. At some point, both the giving and receiving of gifts starts to carry a bit of a burden. As previously noted, there is the difficulty of purchasing gifts that someone will actually want. But there can also be a pressure that accompanies receiving a gift. Again, it is what I call the reciprocation obligation. Many of us feel a duty to do to others what they have done for us or our families. Sometimes, gift giving feels transactional. And, and some feel the obligation to give equal value to that which is received. Many a family gift exchange will get hot this year. Because someone spent over the $25 limit. <laughs> Many a family gathering will get a little sideways because someone bought a gift for someone else for whom they were not supposed to buy a gift this year. Our modern sensibilities cause us to believe that something giving, given results in something owed. As a side note, I love getting gifts, and I expect, I love giving gifts and getting gifts as well, and I expect nothing in return, but I want you to also know that I feel absolutely no pressure to give you anything back when you give me something. So feel free to come and give me whatever you want, and I will accept it graciously and humbly. The address here at the church is 505 <laughs> Community Drive, Seymour, Indiana. But it, it, it's true, isn't it? We've been in those situations where we, we receive the gift and it's a little bit awkward. It's like, oh, I, but I didn't get you anything. Or, or have you ever had this? Maybe you've had this where you, someone gives you a gift and you're like, oh, I, you know what? I have something for you, but I left it at home. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll have to get that for you. I'll get it to you later. But you know, doggone well, that you don't have anything from, at home for them. I see enough laughter out there to know that some of you are sinners just like me. Or maybe, or maybe you, 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 you drive around with extra gift cards in your car just in case you need a gift to give someone on the fly. There's an obligation that we feel. This actually, this reciprocation obligation actually is not a new thing. It's as old as time itself. 
And according to religious traditions of the ancient Near East, building an ornate house for one's God created a sense of obligation. If that God then chose to reside in that house, that God was then obligated to serve the needs of their people. By enticing the God to stay in the house, the God would then be beholden to the needs and desires of the people. So building the house was sometimes somewhat manipulative. Now, I'm not trying to besmirch the, the honor of David. Don't get me wrong here. That's just the reality of the history. But note that God's like, thanks, but no thanks. If a house is going to be built for me, it will be built at my behest, my instruction, in my timing. But not really necessary. Verses 5 through 7, he says, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in the house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? God doesn't feel gypped. Note that. There's not a sense where God feels like he needs anything from David. As a matter of fact, what God is going to show is, David, I need nothing from you. I've asked nothing from you. All I've asked you is to believe and follow me. I will be the one to give you good things and stop feeling like you have to give something back to me. God owes no man or woman anything. He needs nothing from us. Yet he continues to offer his divine presence all the same. He continues to offer us the power of his spirit working in and through us. One scholar writes, The plushness of David's proposed temple contradicts Yahweh's self-understanding. Yahweh will not be bought off, controlled, or domesticated. Verses 6 through 7 tell us that, that God was quite content to live in the tent. And, and you know what's interesting? What God communicates here is that God had already offered what David is trying to entice God to give. David's like, hey, I'm going to build you this house of cedar. Come stay with us. And God's like, David, I've been with you. Like, you, you don't need to build me a house. I'm already here. And even more so, I have a tent. I can move wherever you move. If your people get exiled, I can go with you. I have a tent so that I'm mobile. And wherever my people are, from rich to poor, I can be with you. God had already given David what he's trying to entice God to give. And what God continues to promise is more than we could earn or ask for. If we look back in Deuteronomy, chapter 31, verses 7 and following, or verse 6, excuse me, says, be strong and courageous, Deuteronomy 31, 6, be strong and courageous, do not be afraid or terrified because of them, for the Lord your God goes with you, he will never leave you nor forsake you. See, God had already promised David what he wanted. What, God's trying, what David's trying to entice to this ornate, let, let's be honest, the ornate temple has more to do with David than it does to do with God. God has already given David exactly what he wants and he needs. God had already promised to go before his people wherever they went. It's a promise that God continued to keep throughout the reign of David. And a promise offered to us through Jesus, Emmanuel. God with us. Hebrews, we, we talk about this passage, I, I quote it quite often, and I quote the Hebrews passage rather than the Deuteronomy passage. But the passage in Hebrews that says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, is a quotation of the Deuteronomic passage. God is promising us exactly what he promised his people in Deuteronomy. 
I will never leave you nor forsake you. God has promised this, this promise, this great promise to his people throughout the ages, and we don't have to manipulate God. We don't have to fight for God's love and God's power and presence in our lives. It's, all, it, it's made available to us through Jesus Christ, and all we have to do is accept it. God is on the move, going wherever his people go and living wherever his people live. We don't have to come to the house of God. Now, don't get me wrong. You should come to church. There are passages of scripture that talk about how important it is for us to come to church and meet together and assemble together, actually in Hebrews of all places. But it's important for us to know that when we come to the church is not the only time we can commune with God. This is not the only place where we meet with God, where we can access God. We can access God wherever we go, because wherever we go, there God is with us. So the first gift is the gift of God's presence. The second gift is the gift of God's peace. Again, in verse 8, we see the phrase, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Verse 8, God reminds David that it was through God's sovereign power that David had been elevated to the throne. Now, you know, there's a slight difference in this declaration from the first one. First one was, this is what the Lord says. The second one in verse 8, it's qualified. It's an increased, it's increased in significance as it says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Now, it's also, it highlights an interesting shift in, in the reference to David. If you look at the beginning of the passage, David is referred to as the king, and the king, and the king. But then as God begins to speak, tell my servant, David, that the Lord Almighty says this. That, that Almighty term is a, a regal term. It's an official royal title. God is reminding David of his place and who the true king is. That it is through, only through the power of God Almighty that David is where he is and will get where he's going. And God had brought David through some pretty significant things, hasn't he? As the old adage goes, if God brings us to it, God will see us through it. Verses 8 and 9, God reminds David of God's continual faithfulness to him on his journey from being a nameless shepherd to being the king of all Israel. God had brought David through incredibly difficult seasons as the then reigning king tried to kill him over and over as a manhunt was sent out throughout the land to try to capture and kill David. But through it all, David found peace in the continued power and presence of God with him. We see that in Psalms. That's not me guessing on that. We can go to the Psalms and we could spend a lot of time cross-referencing passages where David is out in the wilderness running from Saul and he talks about the peace that God is giving him, that he will trust in the Lord even in the midst of the difficult times, that God is his strength in the times of trouble. And the same is true for us. The start of 2 Samuel 7, though, tells us that David was settled into his palace and had rest from his enemies. But the promise of God's peace here extends beyond David's current situation, back through the past, and on into whatever the future holds, and even beyond David's death. That God's peace would be made available to David, David's children, and God's people in perpetuity. I got to ask the question, and this is what came to my mind as I was, I was reading this this week. Where did God find you? Where did God find you? Where was it that you realized that God was seeking after you? And you accepted the salvation that he offered. You accepted that relationship, that sonship or daughtership in the kingdom of God. Where, where did God find you? What has God brought you through? What are the situations in your past that you, as you look at it and you, and you consider the reality of what you've experienced, the struggle you've been through or the successes you've found, where you've looked at that and, and you've analyzed and evaluated it and as you think about it, you think to yourself, only God 
This could only have happened through God. What has God brought you through to get you to where you are today? I'm certain that any of us could tell any number of stories of the goodness of God as God has preserved us and brought us through the midst of of difficult seasons, hard struggles, and brought us to where we are today. And his peace preserved us through the struggles we faced. Wherever you find yourself today, perhaps you look back and you reflect and say, God has brought me to a good place today. Praise God. Or perhaps you'd look and say, I'm in a difficult season now and I'm in a storm. Know this, wherever you find yourself today, God is working in your life. He consistently pursues us. He consistently is finding us where we are and preserving us through all that life throws at us. Life isn't always peaceful. But we can have peace through it all because Almighty God will always be with us and can make much out of our mess. And God promises David three things in the context of this promise of God's peace. Verse 9, he promises, I will make your name great. Verse 10, God promises, I will provide a place for my people. I will plant them. They will no longer be disturbed or oppressed. And in verse 11, I will give you rest from your enemies. We need to remember that. That our relationship with God is not about what we do for God or what we bring to God. Now, we should offer our offerings and we should offer ourselves as living sacrifices to God. Don't get me wrong. There are things we should do and things we should not do as we seek to follow God. But understand that that the relationship is fairly one-sided. And God offers us all of these great and fabulous things through his grace and mercy. And God says to us, just as he said to David, I will. Our place in peace in this world is not found or established by looking deep within ourselves. We don't find our peace by looking inside ourselves for our peace. That is a fool's errand and a lie that the world tells us. That we can establish our peace just by being content with ourselves. I hate to tell you this. But if you look deep inside yourself, you know what you're going to find? A sinner. The story of Jekyll and Hyde tells us that I find that to be in a, the most poignant thing in the, the musical Jekyll and Hyde. It is the point where Jekyll and Hyde are singing back and forth. And Jekyll says um, to Hyde, he says, no, deep inside. And Hyde makes this comment to Dr. Jekyll. He says, I am good. You are Hyde. That's a truth that down deep inside of us, there is sin that we try to hide. We won't find our peace by looking inside ourselves because there is no peace in and of ourselves. We are a broken people. It is only through turning to Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, that we find peace to override the struggle in our lives. We only find our place in true abiding peace, not by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, not by looking deep within ourselves, but by placing our trust in Almighty God. And resting in the power of his presence and trusting in the propriety of his plan. So the second gift that God offers David is the gift of peace. The third gift that God offers is the gift of God's perpetual provision. The gift of God's perpetual provision. And again, Nathan says, the Lord declares to you, thus saith the Lord. And this is where I think it gets really interesting. Because 2 Samuel 7 starts with David declaring his intention to build the house for the Lord. And here it culminates with God declaring that he would instead build a house for David. A house that would endure forever. God's promise, however, has nothing to do with cedar or ornate buildings. And everything to do with David's family tree. 
God is promising to establish a kingdom of his own making with divine backing that would last forever. And just as with Eve last week, God promises David a son to come who would fulfill these promises. These promises now extend through David's life and after his death. And God promises to perpetually provide for David, his family, and his kingdom forever. But the question must be asked as you look at these texts. Who is the child to whom these promises apply? There's actually three correct answers. First, the promises apply to Solomon. In verse 12, it says, When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. God promises to raise up a son to succeed David to the throne. You know what's interesting is David already had had sons that were in line for the throne. Absalom and Abijah. But as is God's way, God chose to elevate the least of David's sons, a son born in sin through illegitimate means. And God chooses to raise up the as-to-yet-not-born son, Solomon. Solomon would become the king to ascend to the throne. Now, it's interesting. It's only through divine intervention and intention that Solomon ascended to the throne of David. Remember, God said, I will do this. David had his own plan. David, I'm sure, had every intention of of Absalom becoming king. And then Abijah after him. But certainly not the son of Bathsheba until later, much later, as God revealed it to him. We also know it's about Solomon because it was he who built the temple in Jerusalem to represent God's presence with his people and his power residing with them permanently. Even in the, and we also know that even in the face of Solomon's unfaithfulness, that God still stays faithful to his promise and demonstrates his love for Solomon. The Bible tells us that Solomon loved him, the ladies, and the ladies loved them some Solomon. <laughs> and that Solomon, as he brought these brides and these wives and these concubines in, that he would set up altars to their gods And Solomon was incredibly unfaithful to God. We would argue, we could argue more so than Saul was even. Yet God remained faithful to Solomon through all of his days. And God doesn't take the kingdom from him. So first, the child to whom these promises apply is Solomon. But it doesn't end there. These promises also apply to us. And all who believe, these promises apply to you if you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you've accepted his salvation by grace through faith. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 says this, I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Well, that's, that's exactly that verse. Here we see Paul taking that verse and applying it to all those who believe in God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That we become the children of promise. That we become the recipients of God's peace. We become the recipients of God's presence. We become the recipients of God's perpetual provision by grace through faith. In John 1.12, the Gospel of John supports this idea. Telling us that, that to all those who believe, he gave the right to become children of God. We become children of the Father and recipients of the promise by faith, by invitation of the Father. And just like Solomon, we become adopted children and God becomes a father to us. Disciplining us and correcting us when we need it. And that his abiding love endures forever by his great grace. But above and beyond all others, beyond Solomon and beyond we ourselves, 
These promises find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. More than any other, Christ fulfills the promises of the Davidic covenant. That the throne of David will remain forever refers ultimately to none but Christ. Because David's kingdom did fall. It did have an end. But Christ's kingdom has no end. Jesus, ultimately, is not the recipient of God's promise. But Jesus is the gift of God's promise. These passages, when you look at verse 16, it cannot apply to anybody but Jesus. Verse 16 of 2 Samuel 7 says, Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. If we look in Luke chapter 1, we see that the angel tells Mary exactly this. It says, he will be great and he be called the son of the most high. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. This promise finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus because Jesus is the son of promise. But we see that the gospel writers create a tie to Jesus, that Jesus is in fact the promised son of David. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 24. Matthew chapter 1. I love reading this passage every year because it's the one that people find least attached to the Christmas story, but is probably most important. Because what we have here at the beginning of Matthew is what's known as the Matthew's begats. So-and-so begat and begat and begat and begat. And we see it as a useless list of names. And we actually see this list of names twice, once here in Matthew and once in Luke. In Luke, what it does is it, it establishes the, the patrilineal lineage of, David, of, of Jesus, just ex- establishing that Jesus is, in fact, this child who he says he is. But... Matthew's begats are more important even because what Matthew does is not just establish the validity of who Jesus is, but the validity of Jesus' claim to the throne. This is what is known as the kingly lineage. This is what it says. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Solomon. Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the Babylonian exile. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihad, Abihad the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathen, Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David. 14 from David to the exile to Babylon. And 14 from the exile to the Messiah. And this is how the birth of the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary 
home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. It took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name of Jesus. By accepting Jesus as his son, Joseph brings the only begotten son into the, of God into the line of David and puts him in line for the throne of David. It's incredibly interesting to me that neither David or his son, Joseph, did anything to bring about the promise of God. They didn't produce the heir themselves. It was produced through the power of God. Christ was conceived and born of a virgin. Christ is a gift that can only then be received and not earned, not produced by our own power. This is part of what the virgin birth teaches us. Christ is the promise of God that we receive with open hearts and minds. Now is then, it's not ultimately about what we have to offer the king of the universe, but what the king of the creation has given to and for us. God in his grace and mercy has given us the perfect gift through the coming of his son, Jesus Christ. As John 3.16 tells us, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God has offered us this, the most precious of gifts. May we receive it with humility and joy. And as we do, may we give thanks for the new covenant, the renewed promise of God, the expanded promise of God that includes us in the scope of the promises of the past and allows us to live into his grace in the future as we live as the children of God. Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and grace to us. I pray as we come together to celebrate communion, to recognize what you've given to us, that you would open our hearts and minds to see your goodness in so many ways. In Jesus' name, amen.